Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So, I know you're thinking, Doug, Friday the 13th in January. And we know that, of course, but me and Jamie had to ride that train. We did Halloween on Halloween, so we had Michael Myers, then Freddy Krueger. And we couldn't let Jason just sit on the sidelines. We couldn't do that to the guy. He's our favorite, so that's why we had to save the best for last. Sorry, Freddy fans. We love him, too. Sorry, Michael fans. He's okay. He's okay. And that's why the next sequel that we're going to be covering is Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood, Carrie versus Jason. Man, that one is such a fun one for me. It's the first time that Kane Hunter, you know, donned that mask. So that's why it was especially exciting to be able to interview yet another Jason victim. And I chatted with Jane, uh, played by the amazing actress, Stacy Greason. She did a couple horror movies to kick off her career, and then it all changed. Days of Our Lives, Isabella Toscano. Hearing her story about how she kind of just busted her hump to get that role and how to prove herself in a guest spot, uh, pretty cool. And then 466 episodes later, she's doing that. And then we talked about her transitioning into writing. So the writing aspect of it was pretty exciting for me because obviously I love all aspects of film. I write screenplays as a hobby. Never probably going to get anything made, but it's the fun part of creating it, like us doing what we do for you know you guys listening, which we love when you guys reach out and say, oh, that was so funny, or I love that interview. So keep that coming. We love it so much, and follow us on all social media, at sequels only, and tell your friends about us, subscribe, rate us wherever you listen. And we talked about Stacy's book, Back to Stacy, because she's more important than we are. <laughs> we talked about all the girls in town, her novel, kind of a thriller. We talked a little bit about that. Another book that she wrote in, you know, 1999, Y2K, uh, that she's going to be working on. So I thought that's pretty interesting. Fun chat with her, talking about, you know, how you kind of go from a quote unquote nobody to an overnight sensation, you know, for a role on Days of Our Lives and acting, horror, how she landed the role of Friday the 13th, uh, from a person that is uh, a big time director for Full Moon, uh, William Butler. Man, so much to talk about. Loved chatting with her. I love when I get the opportunity to go back and uh, edit a few months after I do the initial interview. Because I get to experience again as a listener, and I, and I love that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put Stacy's website in the episode notes along with her social media so you can follow her. But her website's easy. It's Stacy Greason at uh, just StacyGreason.com. Her social media, I'll put all in there so you don't have to try to, like, while you're driving, start writing things down. It's in the episode notes, all the important stuff. So, yeah, without further ado, here is actress but more importantly writer stacy greason no so this would be really fun usually like i i jump off the bat like where people started but one thing i'm fascinated by you is, is the writing end of it that, that that you're a writer was that something that you did way back when or is that something you fell in love with you know over the years i wrote when i was a kid i grew up in the sort of half off the grid in the woods in Colorado. And so I had a lot of time to myself. My sister and I were just sort of range free. 
um, it's like we're still here in spite of mountain lions and bears. We're still here. And we were range free kids. And um, I wrote songs on my guitar. I wrote bad love poetry. But I, I had a huge fascination with movies and with musicals. So I always thought I would be a singer. So that's why I was writing songs is that I thought I would sing them and play them on my guitar and at the piano, but I'm not that greatest singer. So, um, but it wasn't until, and then I really didn't write for a long time because I was acting and that it wasn't until I was on a soap opera that I had a lot of downtime and I started doing a little bit of writing and holy shit, this is what I want to do with my life. I'm not an actor. I'm a writer. Wow. So it how just felt like coming home. Yeah. So even more fascinating. So how do you go from being like half off the grid in Colorado? Like where is that point in your life? Obviously you love movies, you love musicals. Where is that step to pursue acting as a career? How did that start? My high school, I was very, very shy as a kid, which my friends find hilarious now because I'm not at all, but my <laughs> I was really shy, but my best friend in high school, Judy Sperber, she was a year older and I was her tag along and she was like, we're going to audition for this musical, how to succeed in business without really trying and you're going to audition with me. And I got in the chorus and then I just got the bug uh, up on stage with, you know, live theater with an audience. I had the bug and I always (laughs) loved musicals. I was always running through the woods singing uh, the sound of music and <laughs> yeah. music. Oh yeah. I was really, yeah. Wearing my aunt Margie's old blue prom dress. And I <laughs> definitely wanted to grow up to be Barbara Streisand. Like that was my goal. That was your goal. <laughs> yeah, that was my goal. And so I did theater in high school and then I didn't, I didn't have an idea. I, I wasn't, you know, in high school, you're not really formed. And all my friends were going away to college to pursue theater. And so I just followed them. So I wound up, you know, being a musical theater major for a year with my friends at this college in Denver called uh, Loretto Heights. And it was kind of like a fame kind of school. You had tap at eight o'clock in the morning and then biology (laughs) and then acting class. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I couldn't afford to go back the next year. So then I took time off and I studied uh, opera. I studied music. I did a lot of plays Went back to college for a while, studied theater some more. And then, you know, one day I was sitting in French class and I thought, I want to be an actor. What am I doing in Denver (laughs) in French class? An actor does, I don't need a, you know, a college degree to be an actor. So I convinced my best girlfriend at the time uh, that we would move to New York because real actors move to New York. And she had an uncle who worked at the New York Times. So we got jobs there as, as gophers delivering, you know, stuff for the New York Times. A couple of weeks before we were going to move to New York, my friend chickened out. And I had, <sighs> I couldn't go. But I had a friend uh, in L.A. and she was like, you can move in with me. Wow. And so I packed up my car and I moved to L.A. And so <laughs> I, I wound up in L.A. with sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, a circuitous route. I was going to go to New York and then I wound up in L.A. But that was that I time. Love I love Los that Angeles. That was like mid mid eighties. Mid eighties. It was such a good time. It was before you know. I'm very old, so it was before <laughs> social media, and um, it was just a really great time to be an actor 
we still separated the actors from the models and we were all you know if you were a theater actor you didn't do commercials and like there were all these you know lines that you start out with and then you're like man i'll do anything i just gotta pay my rent (laughs) but i loved it i moved out to la and i waited tables for a while but then i got really lucky and you know i i had to pay the rent and i got a full-time job working for Irvin Arthur, who was this big agent. So I was one of his assistants. And he dis- when I was there, he discovered Ellen DeGeneres. So like wow. I went with Ellen and another assistant to her first Tonight Show appearance. Um, and I met all the greats, Shelley Berman, Mort Saul, all these great old actors and comedians. And it was the best. I mean, I recommend that highly to every young artist is it's like, if you're going to move to LA, get a job, like figure out what the rest of the business is yeah. and, you know, get a gig working in an agency and then do plays at night and take classes and hustle, hustle. It was really invaluable for me to know. And of course, you know, the other assistants and I were sliding our headshots into um, <laughs> packages to go out every day. We were totally pitching each other. Yeah. And I'm sure that Irvin knew because eventually I wound up getting a screen test for a soap opera called Santa Barbara. And yeah. um, and Irvin did my deal. <laughs> he wasn't my boss anymore, though. I had moved across the street for and worked for the Brokaw Company, and I was doing Bill Cosby's fan mail. I only met Mr. Cosby once, thank goodness. So I don't have to have any (laughs) bad stories about all that nightmare. Um, But uh, but I did like I did tour press for Kiss and Tom Wopat, and and I sort of worked for these publicists, the Brokaws. Their dad uh, Norman had started William Morris, this huge agency. So I learned so much behind the scenes, and so then we were still slipping our headshots and resumes into all the packages, going out to the casting directors. I was still going on auditions, um, and that's when I finally got a screen test. Well, I screen tested seven times for Days of Our Lives before they finally wrote a role for me. Um, and that was very cool. And and then Urban Arthur just, he did my contracts, my old boss. So uh, it's, yeah, it was really great. And Ellie Canner went on to, my the other assistant went on to be a huge cast director. She cast Friends. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's fun to be around LA long enough. You know, if you stay long enough and you keep working eventually, I think the people that, you know, it, it works out, you know, are the ones who stayed. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's really hard to stay. Oh, no, it's got to be because so many people, you got to think the success rate in Hollywood is so low. So if you don't have that drive to make it, like I think Stephen Colbert said it, even though it's not, he wasn't out in LA, but he was at uh, Second City in Chicago and he was the backup to Steve Carell. Right. And he said to... Everybody in like the cast, they were like, if you stay here long enough, you'll get a, a show. It doesn't mean you're going to be somebody, but you could stick it out. You can make it. And then sometimes it does happen in Hollywood. You get your shot. It just depends on if you can nail it or if people like you. But that's so great. You auditioned seven times and they created a role for you. Well, I screen tested, I think I screen tested six times. I may be remembering how many times wrong, but the network didn't think I was pretty enough to be on a soap opera. But the executive producer, Shelley Curtis at the time, really loved me. And the network had no say-so on guest roles. So she wrote a guest 
starring role for me. And then she told me, you have two weeks to prove to the network that you deserve a contract. And I busted my ass. Wow. And it was so much fun. Do you like that versus like movies, like acting? I've interviewed a few people that were on soaps and just the the regiment. It's like, get it done, right? There's no like seven takes for a scene. It's so hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Well, they're just completely different animals. Being on a soap opera is a little like doing a play every day. And, um, you know, if your character is super hot. So when my character's storyline was super hot, it was 40 pages of dialogue to memorize a day. And those were the old days where we used to start at like, you'd get on set at 530 in the morning. And sometimes you got home at like nine or 10 at night. So you're working 80 hour weeks. And yeah, they don't do that anymore. Now they do what's (laughs) called block and tape. So you show up, you tape your, you know, hair and makeup, tape your scenes, go home. Um, but it was, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I loved being on movies, but I didn't do that many before I quit acting to pursue writing. Yeah. But I got my, I got my chops starting in horror films, right? Was that your first, was that before, or it's like the same year, right? It was before, my, was before, my first paid acting job was in a horror film called Terror Night. Oh, okay. So that's the, the first time you worked yeah, with William Butler. Written by the wonderful, wonderful Kenneth Hall, who's like a special effects master. Nice. Um, and uh, he, I can't remember how it wound up that he wound up not being on the movie, but he wrote the original script. But, oh, okay. Um, it was so much fun. It was the most fun I've ever had. We just ran through the woods screaming and dying, and and we had a blast. It was really fun, and I think we went through like three or four directors, and um, it was crazy. Yeah, it was yeah. like guerrilla filmmaking, shoestring budget. I think the guy who produced it, I shouldn't even say it, Mafia? I don't know. I'm but, sure. Uh, it was crazy. It was crazy fun, and I think that, uh, yeah, I would think, well, I was the lead. My name was Kathy. They didn't even uh, offer wardrobes, so I wore my friend Julie's pink pantsuit that was like two sizes too big. And <laughs> I'm just like this big head of hair running through the woods screaming, having the time of my life, awesome. acting up a storm, like using all my Meisner training and my Stanislavski, like my real training as an actor. Yeah. And I'm just determined I'm going to give like an Academy Award winning performance. And it was a blast. That's awesome. So does that... How how soon after that do you get Friday the 13th part seven? I can't remember in years. It may have been like a year. Maybe it's like it was the same less. year. Well, it came out the same year on IMDb. It doesn't mean it was filmed the same year, but. Well, if memories. So um, when I did Terror Night, which I think is now called Bloody Movie, um, <sighs> we rented it recently so I could show it to my husband and he was like, that's the worst movie ever made. It is so bad. It's fantastic. Nice. I um, love that. And, uh, so on that film, I made some really good friends. Billy Butler, William Butler, who's yep. a big horror guy. Big so, director for uh, uh, Full Moon. He does all the Full Moon movie, movies. Yeah. Now. So he and I were the little leads in Terror Night. And that's okay. how we met and became friends. We okay. were the last two to die. So we had the most time working together. And yeah. then, um, and he sort of taught me the chops because he'd been in a bunch of films already. And, you know. You know, don't don't blow your wad the first take. Like, stop crying on the first take. Like, here's some eye drops. Like, take it down a notch. It's a long night. You need to just. So I learned a lot watching Billy. He's a really nice guy. And um, then he was doing Friday the 13th, part seven. And he called and said, get down here, meet John Beekler. I want you to play my girlfriend. And so I came down and met John Beekler, who was the nicest man. Ever. Oh, yeah. 
May he yeah. rest in peace. John Beekler was a sweetheart. And um, and so then I was playing Billy's girlfriend in Friday the 13th, part seven. And I was getting flown first class to Mobile, Alabama by Paramount. And I was like, that's it. I'm a star. I'm a movie star. I, I was it. so excited because I was the first one killed. And I was like, oh, my God, Kevin Bacon was the first one killed, right, in, part, in, in Friday the 13th, one. Yep. And I was like... Oh my God! I am literally six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> you are. Nobody can say I. I can really say it. I was so excited. I was just out of my mind, and I went and you know did the scenes, and it was over. And but it was a blast. I loved working because you know what you. I mean, a lot. If you they, the saying is, if you want to hear an actor complain, give them a job. And I have found that to be somewhat true, but. I was so grateful. I was so shocked every time that I have a job. I'm like literally getting paid to do this. I'm getting paid yeah. to do this. I'm not sitting at a desk, in, you know, in a cubicle, you know, it, it's, this is like a dream. It was just a dream. Yeah. <laughs> now was your, your death scene, was that way, the way it was scripted? Like the way it was actually eventually shot? So I know that movie yes. got crushed and Beekler was heartbroken about how much got cut out of that movie. Oh, well, I I don't remember my stuff getting cut out. That's good. I don't remember. I know he worked really hard on it. Yeah. I just remember having a lot of fun with my death. I just did another podcast recently, and the name will come to me, a horror podcast, where they break down the film by beats. And, oh, cool. Uh, and, and they and they made fun of me. They they said when I'm dead, you can see me breathing. You can see the cold air coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, well, I can't take that back. That was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> but I was convinced. I gave a stellar performance. I I had this whole idea that acting was lowering your voice, and so I think my line is, "When's the last time you put gas in that thing?" And it's like, <laughs> what? What am I doing? And why do I have all that hair? What is all that 80s hair and the shoulder pads? Did you do that then? Did you watch yourself? Like even when like the soap hit the air and you're, I'm sure we're watching yourself. Did you like critique yourself like at that time or do you do it more now? Uh, oh, I don't do it at all anymore. That's Good. the gift of being in my 50s is it's like who gives nice. a crap what anybody thinks. Yeah, um, oh, totally. But, you know, being a young actress, yeah, it. I don't know what it's like anymore, but it was brutal. It was brutal yeah. back then. I definitely smoked two packs a day, worked out twice a day, you know, vegan. Only, yeah, very like, I think I weighed like 104 and I was the fattest person on the soap opera. <laughs> so oh my like, God. Yeah, it was brutal. But a lot of it was internalized too. It wasn't just, yeah. nobody was coming at me telling me to do it. But They're like, here, here's your Marlboros and, for the day. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. an actor in LA. Definitely, there were suggestions made to me over the years I'm to sure. get, you know, get the eyes done, get the boobs done, get the. <sighs> and I thought I'm in my 20s. If I need this done now, I'm, I'm not going to make it to 40. This yeah. is not a way to grow old. No, no not for me. Not at all. No, no, it's insane that they would do that. But uh, I think it's not so in cool a horror that... film. They, they, I yeah. Mean, let me tell you, the horror film world people are so. It's been my experience so nice. Yeah. The fans are great. People are just great. There's not like the crazy. Sometimes with soap fans, most of them are nice, but you know, every once in a while you get a real yeah. scary. Ex yeah. Yeah. So, and then you just call the FBI and you say, please take care of this. <laughs> please For get real. this person off my property. Yeah. yeah. Isabella. <laughs> They're yeah. just like shouting outside. 
Yeah. It, yeah. It's interesting. You get all kinds of letters. You get all kinds of fan mail that you have fans who tell you like Isabella, Victor hid the key to your mother's diary in the library under the clock. And you're just like, you know, this isn't real, right? It, that was the only, that really was the thing I really, really didn't like was being uh, recognized and um, bothered. I loved having my job so much yeah. and I loved that people really loved the character and I felt grateful about it all, but I didn't, I didn't like uh, being approached in restaurants yeah. and in airport bathrooms and having stalkers and, you know, people who were mad at you because your character does, it's very uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> how quick did that happen? Did your character arc get that big that you were starting to get noticed? Uh, pretty fast oh. because they paired me up with one of the lead actors, Drake Hogeston. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so it happened pretty fast. Within a couple of months, boom, there I was. You know, a super couple, and just getting used to like the photo shoots and all the scenes. And Drake was a great guy. He is a great guy, but um, it was a lot. A friend of mine said it's like he became very famous daytime TV actor when he was 17. And it said, nobody gets it. It's like they strap you to a rocket and just like send you out to space. And you're yeah. like, help. <laughs> I can't handle this much. I mean, I could handle the responsibility because I've always been the designated driver. But yeah. um, I I couldn't handle all the attention. You know, when actors are young, I think what happens often is that often we become actors because we love expressing ourselves that way and being heard and we, and actors have big feelings, which I think is, can I cuss on this? No. Yeah. I think, I think it's fucking awesome that I think actors are the shamans of the tribe and we help people feel things that they don't let themselves feel in their daily lives. We, we, you know, we open vistas for people and because of that actors are very thin skinned. And so what happens is if you take a very thin skinned person and you put them right in front of the public for scrutiny and you know, you have a time bomb. I mean, if, if you don't have your stuff healed inside, it is a time bomb. I mean, we've seen it over and over again, you know? So I always tell young people when they want to come out to LA, I'm like, have a really great mentor, a really great spiritual practice and, you know, and some really true friends, you know, don't yeah. like, don't come out to be an actor to fix something that's missing from your childhood, <laughs> which is, you know, a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And do it because you love it. Not because there's like, the, let me tell you, I, I was daytime TV famous and there's nothing special in being famous. It doesn't make you feel any differently about yourself inside. Really, yeah. it doesn't at all. If anything, it heightens the things you don't like about yourself because then you feel like, oh my God, everybody can see how much I, I don't like this about myself. And oh yeah, they'll notice this or that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. It, and there's nothing special to it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything at the end of the day, right? It's a job. So it's like you yeah. should really, really love your job. Yeah, because if you don't love your job, most of the time it's going to, it's going to show on screen and people aren't going to like that person anymore. For the most part, there's some actors and actresses that get wheeled out for some movies like uh, nothing against them, but like Steven Seagal, some of these movies, it seems like he's walking through his lines. Like he's just like, there's no emotion or anything behind it. And then he probably goes home. He's probably there for an hour, but so he's like, show me the money. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. But no, you have to love it. I don't know. I feel like all the people that I talk to, whether it be like people in front of the camera or behind the camera, like you have to have like this different gear to go through it. Because like you said, you went on 
you know, the, all the auditions, screen tests. Some people after like three screen tests be like, all right, I guess this isn't for me. I guess I can go take the bus back to, you know, where, you know, Nebraska and I can go home. But you have to have that different like gear. You have to, there has to be something inside a little different that you have that drive to succeed. Yeah. And I don't know where the drive comes from. I mean, you know, I, I have been a writer for a long time without any money until recently. And, um, and I've had every day job you can possibly imagine. And I would beat myself up all the time. Like, why did I quit a lucrative job on daytime TV to write novels and screenplays that nobody wants to buy? Why would I do that to my, but there's a kind of inner drive. You can't really help who you are and what you're passionate about, you know? And I figure, you know, I have a, an, a friend, an artist, Dustin Schuler, and he's no longer alive, but he was this just wonderful visual artist. And he said to me, I was complaining about, you know, writing this thing and that thing and how nobody wants it. And I'm temping at the state of Colorado and living in my parents' basement. This was in like my late thirties, early forties. And my, and he, I was telling him all the things I was doing. And he said, wow, not a bad way to spend a life. Is it making art? Yeah. It's not a bad way. And I thought, oh my God, it is not a bad way to spend a life making art. I mean, even if nobody ever pays you for it, like doing, it's not a bad way to spend a life doing what you love. Some of my friends who are the best actors I've ever seen have never gotten a break and they do plays in town and they, but they've never gotten that, you know, they've never been able to make a living at it. I should say to me, a break is making a living at it. Yeah. So it's just a, it's just luck of the draw. It's just karma. Oh, it is. I don't know, but you should just, if you love it, you should just keep doing it, you know? And if three, and if three screen tests you don't get, like make you want to go home, then you should go home because <laughs> that's okay too. You should have oh, a yeah. good life, right? Yeah. But at least you tried. At least you came out, you got, you did some screen tests. You were like, no, thank you. That's not for me. <laughs> yes. No, but like you were saying with Ellen, like Ellen might've been Ellen no matter what. You know, right. If she wasn't discovered or the opposite, maybe somebody doesn't discover Ellen and then somebody else gets chosen in that moment. So you just have to nail your moment. There's so many people that you probably because we only remember the ones that make it, but we never see. Think about the ones that had like the the show that was on for a little bit that maybe just didn't get the ratings. That person like had their shot and just people didn't gravitate towards them. But no, that's why I love interviewing people and hearing about like how they because it's it's so fascinating like the whole thing behind it and what's super fascinating is with soaps to go back to that like with days of our lives it's so crazy with with that show because they could do it cuz there's no kind of like horror there's no rules to like the way things are right. that right. that your character was able to come back so many different times how was that like getting that call or i don't know i'm sure they called you and said we want Isabella back, like in the 2000s or in 2010. Well, it was great because I needed the money. Oh, of um, course. Yeah, I'm sure. But it wasn't like the first experience, you know? Yeah. It was definitely, uh, we've moved on from you. But I needed the money. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go back on now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was good. It was good to see everyone that I had worked with, but things had changed, you know? So it wasn't the same as the golden memories I have of yeah, of being a part of the family. Yeah. It's just so crazy on the show. It's like the uncle died in like an episode in the 90s. And it's like, oh, they found him on a on an island. 
right. like last year and they're able to do that. So then, like you said, you're writing all this time. Like when did you actually start writing? It was one you were on the soap and you had the downtime. I was on the soap and I was, I just started writing. You know, I left a lucrative job after I wrote one short story. I was like, that's it. I'm out of here. Now I'm going to be a writer. And I guess I thought that it would be as easy as it had been, you know, because it only took me, I got to LA, I think when I was 22 and I was working by the time I was 24, that doesn't what? usually happen. No. So, but I didn't know that. So I just thought, well, now I'm going to go pursue writing and I'm going to make a living as a poet. <laughs> so I left the job. I moved out of the place I was living in, in Beechwood Canyon, which is this really cool area near the Hollywood sign. And I moved to like a mountaintop in Topanga and started teaching myself to write. And I cried for a year. I was like, I have made a terrible mistake. Um, And I did ask the show to come back and they were like, nope. You didn't want, you wanted to die. So we killed you off. Um, and I was just like, holy crap. And I thought, oh, I'll go back to school. And so I tried going back to school a few times, but I just kept writing. So by the time, I think by five years after leaving this soap, I had written my first novel and gotten an agent. Um, and then you write the next one and get a new agent. And then, the ne- you know, so the one that just came out is my fourth novel. Nice. But it's the first one that's been traditionally published. Cool. So it well, took 28 years. So you just don't know. But you and did I've it. a lot of Like your friend said, and, you did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I've written a lot of screenplays and TV pilots and a few have won film festivals. But, um, but mostly it's just about the, you know, the hustle. How'd you come up with the idea, like all the girls in town was that something that was there like an inspiration or like was it from do you like that particular genre or was it like a story in the news that inspired that well this this so the story so it's women's fiction and it's about three women who come together to um seek justice for a rock star who destroyed their lives so it's very much a me a me too book but it's also about family and friendship and uh, body issues and alcoholism and racism and abortion. And it's like everything. Um, so I, I don't really come up with an, it's more like an idea sort of visits me. Okay. And a million years ago, I used to only date musicians, which is like being always breaking up with somebody. And, uh, <laughs> but I loved musicians. I still love musicians. I, but, um, uh, and I used to keep a blog about dating musicians. And so one of the characters in my novel, All the Girls in Town, Danny, she keeps a blog about her ex-husband. And in every entry, she kills him in a new and interesting way. Wow. So she calls herself a literary assassin. And by writing this blog about all the horrible things that her ex did to her, two other women... Um, well, one woman finds her, his on-again, off-again lover, Red, finds her, and they form an alliance, and they start sharing, and they start realizing, oh, it, it actually wasn't me. It actually was him. Um, and he's a, he's a bad guy. He's not a good guy. Um, and he's currently married to his uh, backup singer that he left his, his wife. So his ex-wife who writes the blog, he left her for his beautiful backup singer, Sasha. And so uh. she's living in their big house in the Hollywood Hills and she's pregnant with his twins and she has a 
a vegan yoga lifestyle brand called <laughs> Goddess. And, uh, and she's really a great gal. She's completely without guile. She has no idea that Peter is so horrible, the, uh, the musician Peter. Um, but all these women, their stories start intertwining as told cool. in the... So, it, so maybe, yeah, so the idea of the blog came to me that way, but then I just took it full bore. And I thought it would just be Danny, the ex-wife's story that I was telling. And then I started thinking, who might be reading this blog? Yeah. Like who might read it and say, oh yeah, me too. Um, and so then that's how the other characters started being born. And before you knew it, I was, you know, writing about a lot of different lives all at the same time. That's cool. How, how long did it take you to write this book? It usually takes me about two years to write the first draft. And then, you know, you pass it off to a few trusted reader friends and they give you notes Yeah. and your agent. Um, at that, t at the time I didn't have an agent. I had an agent waiting for it. And then, um, my husband read it because I got, nice. I, so I started this novel when I got married for the first time five years ago at the age of 53. And I moved down south with my, in, with my husband because his kids were still in uh, finishing up school. And uh, I had never lived with romantically with anyone before. And I was like, holy crap, I am going to mess this up. I'm going to mess it up so hard. So I just <laughs> locked myself in the guest house and I wrote a book. Um, so that I did, they could, they could slowly get used to me. And nice. while I was writing all the girls in town, Harvey Weinstein stuff started coming up. Jenny yep. Lumet wrote her open letter to Russell Simmons in the Hollywood reporter about the night that he raped her. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I started thinking about all the beautiful women I know who, I mean, you know, one in five women will be sexually assaulted in this country in their lifetime. So if it's not the person you're married to, it's someone else, you know, no, and no, I, no. and I really wanted to write about what that unhealed trauma, how it looks in women's lives. It looks like an eating disorder. It looks like alcoholism. Maybe it looks like selling yourself short, hiding from love, like whatever it looks like, no judgment on what it looks like. Just, an exploration of what does it look like and what what might help someone be able to move through it. Not necessarily because you can't change the, the experience that happened, but how can you move on with it or in yeah. spite of it? And so that's what I wanted to explore in the book. Um, and it's a lot about celebrity and fame. Cool. And I love LA, uh, but it's also a place where people really have their priorities so fucked up. The priority is not the uh, the self and others um, and a kind of goodness. The priority is the self, the self, yep. the self, the self. <laughs> and the um, not every, I mean, I know a lot of great people who work in Hollywood, but I'm saying that like that's a kind of an experience I had being in Hollywood was this, uh, the super, a lot of the superficial and how that hurts people. Um and so I just wanted to explore the idea of the celebrity and how Peter, this rock star, is able to get away with a lot of shit because of his celebrity. Yeah, that's usually so. how it is. Even though Hollywood or in school, the popular kid gets away with, or somebody that knows the chief yeah, of police the in a small in town. College, yep. Yeah. No, no, 100%. That's really cool. No, I'm going to check out the book. Uh, and my, and my, I told my wife about it. Because uh, there's a great playlist there. I, I have a playlist on there. Um, if you want to check out the playlist on Spotify and Apple, but, um, but mostly 
what, what, how do I want to finish talking about the book? My, um, I have a lot of men reviewing the book right now on Amazon and Goodreads. And so it's definitely, you know, men often think, oh, it has a lead female character. It's, it's a book for women, which is just welcome to America. Um, So (laughs) it's really, a, a lot of men are saying, if you want to get inside the mind of your women friends or your wife or partner, it's a good book to read. Cool. It's, it's sort of about how women, we torture ourselves with the male gaze. We've internalized it and we don't even realize how we've internalized it. So, But it's also funny because I think that comedy helps us move through grief. So there's a lot of funny stuff. Nice. Was it like a special moment? Like just seeing the book behind you and like I saw the cover online, like the first time when they send that to you and you yeah. like have it, that's got to be oh, so- Oh, I just cried so oh. hard. Yeah. That's amazing. I cried signing my publishing contract. I, yeah. My, uh, yeah, at my book events with all my friends showing up, friends who've supported me like yeah. for, you know, through 30 years of uh, chanting, you know, I'm a Buddhist and I'm always chanting to break through and change my karma. So through 30 years of chanting and writing and then listening to me, you know, work on my day jobs and all the awful boyfriends and all the, and there they were. And we were celebrating together, you know, It was great. It was really great. And now I feel like, what do I want to do now? Did that only took 30 years. What do I want to do now? Yeah. Is there something now, would you want to like act or write another book or maybe like more screenplays? Do you have something that you want to? Well, I have a screenplay that's out there making the rounds right now based on my last novel that I self-published. It's called Treed. And it's about a housewife who climbs a tree by the mall and lives in it to save it from being torn down. So that's sort of making the rounds. And I have a pilot. It won the Studio City um, Festival Best Pilot with my friend Joey Geronda. I have a couple writing partners for uh, oh, cool. screenplays sometimes. And uh, and it's like an, an odd couple, an elderly woman and a young girl move in together in Chicago. And that's been, you know, we're, we're out there with that. And I have a new novel that I'm getting ready to go out and pitch. Oh, sweet. About two people who join a survivalist cult in the desert. My wife would love that. That's what she always jokes about. Yeah, that's all she talks about is whenever we watch those documentaries, like we lived in Oregon for a little bit, like that Oregon wow. cult documentary, Wild Country. It's like, how are these Or the one that was in Hawaii where the guy handpicked like people that look like they were models and he had yeah. a cult. I think it was in California and then he went to Hawaii, but it's crazy how these things still People get preyed on and they get pulled People into these are, like... We're lost and then we try to connect the dots in interesting ways and we wind up joining a cult. Yeah. Well, I people think we've certainly seen that the last few years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They 100%. absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote the first draft of this book, The Optimists, about the people who join a cult. Um, I wrote that before 9-11 and it was going to be published. And then 9-11 happened and the book was deemed too un-American and sent back to me because they join a cult called Take Back America. And now it's just our daily lives. (laughs) And I'm like, I guess. So my agent was like, you better redo that book and get it back out there. Yeah, we'll see. That's awesome. But it's a bit of a Bonnie and Clyde book, too. It's not just a – the cult is a little part of it, yeah. The, the, but I was interested in what makes someone join a cult, right? Yeah. No, I think it's – whenever you watch those and then they show, like, the backstories on the people. I forget the one. I got to find the one. It was, like, this guy. He did cults throughout the country, but the one in California, it was just the guy and his sister. I think his sister was in it, and then she convinced him to join. And – 
he was like, one day we realized we're like all like model looking people. It was just no like uh. normal quote unquote like people around. And this guy would just pan pick all these people. And like you're you're watching the documentary and you're like, this guy's not so bad, really. Like we didn't watch a trailer on it, read about it, and then it was like, Oh, he's basically like using the people like sexually. You find yourself nodding, like, th- Yeah, that seems right. That seems right. Wait a minute, what's wait, no, this is not right. Wait, all the same outfits? I don't have to cho- choose clothes. They're just like robes that they wear every day. That wouldn't be too bad. But uh And maybe it has to do with people needing to feel special or chosen. Oh yeah. It's they found people yeah, just like all those things. They're yeah. all different types of cult, whether it be some types of religions or maybe like AA. Like a lot of those things are cults. They find these people and then you're like the rest of your life, you're, yeah, like attached to this thing, yeah. But cults, that's good. I love cult stuff. Cult stuff. Well, because you know, I mean, fundamentalist. I mean, yeah. you know, you look at any fundamentalists of any religion, like you know, the extremists, and it's pretty culty. Yeah, but can't take it back to Kevin Bacon. The following, if you ever watch that show, that was a good one. That was on Fox, and there were this season two is about cults. Is Kevin Bacon in that? Oh, yeah, he's the star. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. And here I just discovered Sitting on a Hill. Yeah. Have you watched Sitting on a Hill, Kevin Bacon? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He's amazing. His accent and how crazy he is is such a good actor. Another one, I didn't watch a trailer. I just started watching because he was in it. And then I'm like, the stuff that he's doing in that show, I'm just like, and he's the coolest guy. When he's not acting like that and like doing drugs and like cheating on his wife and being like a terrible person in that show, him and his brother, the Bacon brothers, are touring at these little small venues throughout the country. He's just yeah. like such a cool guy. He's a good actor. He's a good actor. He plays a, a real scumbag, and yet you still somehow like him because yes. he's a good actor. He walks yeah. that line. Yeah. He does. <laughs> and before uh i just have like a couple more questions for you but one cool story about kevin bacon i don't think it ever happened nowadays because everybody knows everyone in a movie because most of the time movies won't have people you don't know because studios don't want to bank on a fresh face for the most part but i read this story and then i saw a clip of him talking about it, i think on howard stern kevin bacon to prepare for footloose like at the age of i think he was like already 25 he went to a high school in the middle of nowhere and just went in as the new kid to feel like, to see how he would feel. And I think he did it for like a week. That's a movie right there. An actor like goes to a school and just like, just prepare. Yes. Just to prepare. But he didn't blow his cover. He didn't. Cause he's a good actor. Good old Ren McCormick. But uh, no, (laughs) this has been great, Stacey. What I love asking people, obviously you knew that this was something you were going to do. Was there any other career paths? Like when I know you went to school for it, but was there any other like careers or jobs that you thought, you know what, maybe I'll do this instead? Never. Nice. And that's why you made it. Never. Well, I had this acting teacher in high school, Neil Fox, who had been an off-Broadway star and he went back to direct I think at off Broadway in a high school in my little town of Conifer, Colorado. And he drilled into us, if you have a plan B, you won't make it. If you have, you know, just have don't have, you know, a backup plan. I don't 
I don't know if I agree with that anymore. I would say that all the years I was working all the really shitty temp jobs and low pay jobs because I didn't have a degree. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just fine, especially if you're a writer. You have to have a day job. Writers do not make money. Um, even when you publish a book, you don't make livable wage. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I, I always think, oh, I should have gone back to school and gotten a master's and then I could teach. But I could still do that if I wanted to, but I don't. Yeah. Think <laughs> <laughs> no, but right. You're right. When it comes to writers, you look at so many great writers of screenplays and you're like, wow, this person did every year in the eighties, like boom, boom, like so many great movies. I interviewed Michael Grace who wrote, he wrote Poltergeist and a ton of movies like right after that. And I love like Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Yeah. So he wrote that Poltergeist too. He did like a Seagal movie. He did cool world and a bunch of other ones. But I, I was like talking to him and you think about, wow, all these movies. And he t- just talked about how many scripts he wrote that never got picked up. And it was like something yeah. like the 50s, 60s. And I'm like, it's a numbers game. Always writing. Yep. Yeah, totally. It's not like you write one and you're like, all right, it's off. It's over. Yeah, it's just honestly, you just like put it in a drawer and then just start the next one. Put it in a drawer and just start, the, you know, just keep going, going, going. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you go back to that first one, blow the dust off of it, and then there might be something that you add to the character, a new right. character, change like the setting, and then And also then maybe, you know, like like this novel of mine that I'm going out with to pitch soon, you know, I wrote that before nine eleven. So how long is that? Twenty twenty one years? Twenty year twenty one years. So here I am. That's why I say nothing is wasted. Yeah. Nothing is wasted. When you're younger, it feels like it's wasted and you feel like, you know, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the, you know. So it's like you just have to make sure you have a really good life, like a really good life, you know, with things you love to do and great friends and because it's going to take some time. Yeah. And even if you are an overnight success, you know, like so maybe I was an overnight success after only being in L.A. for two years and then being on Days of Our Lives. And then it took 30 years for me to have a success again. So yeah. overnight success isn't really anything, right? It's what you want <laughs> yeah. is to just keep working. Yeah. Some people hey, are lucky question. and they just keep working. Yeah. Quick question about that book. When you went back and read it, like when was the first time you touched that again after like 2000, 2001, when you finished writing it? Was it just recently you went back and actually touched it up or anything? Yes. It was during the pandemic when wow. this, when I had just signed a deal for all the girls in town. So that yeah. was waiting and I was waiting to work with the editor and we were going to hold off for a year. And so uh, my agent was like, pull out some other stuff. So I pulled out, it used to be called killing all the actors and now it's called the optimists. And, um, okay. because there's no more actors dying in it. We took that out and I read it and I thought, Oh, poor me. I, this is actually good. And I, I told myself, you know, this was terrible and nobody, you know, they sent it back to you and you're never going to be a writer. And, and sometimes when you read your stuff, you're, you also are pleasantly surprised. You're like, oh, oh, okay. This is something I can work with. You know, <laughs> you have the bad days, but it's good to know you also have the good days. <laughs> oh, totally. Is it set then in like around 2000 or is there really no time? It's set in 1999 at the oh, turn so of the millennium. Oh, so that's even cooler. So you Yeah, so Y2K it. is about to yeah. happen and that's oh, what nice. sort of is the impetus for them, for her to cool. jump into this uh, survivalist cult and try to make America right again for the ordinary person. And 
um, her screenwriter fiance is stabbed to death at a gas station in Bel Air and she sort of loses her mind and, uh, and, and she joins this online group um, called Medley Manifest Nation. And they're all into positive affirmations and peace and making the world a beautiful place. Kind of like QAnon. Yeah, QAnon, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's cool that you have something that you wrote then. Because sometimes you'll have somebody that writes like, uh, like I love the show Yellow Jackets. And oh I thought it was God, cool because they're from New Jersey and they set, they set it in New Jersey. But you're trying to like capture a vibe, which shows can do when they go back in the past. Like Dazed and Confused, I think, did it so perfectly, like capturing like the bicentennial and like that time yeah. frame with everyone. But it's cool yeah. that you wrote it right after that happened. So it was like so fresh in your mind. Y2K, like maybe like the slang that was actually used then. So it's yeah. actually – that's pretty neat. I had to go back and refresh myself on some slang and like, did, did they used to call dudes like douchebags back then? Like what oh, did yeah. they call people? What did they wear? What did they, that was really fun. The hard part though, is it's like, I always have to find the music for the piece when I'm writing. It's like music is like really integral and that music in late 1999 and stuff. It's like, that's not so great. I mean, I got Nirvana, I got the Foo Fighters, but it's like a lot of that stuff. Like Blink-182. Smash yeah, mouth, like yeah, a lot right. of yeah, a lot of pop, but a lot of pop. It was not so, yeah. <laughs> well, Stacy, this has been awesome. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Doug. Man, Stacy was a lot of fun. Just the journey from, like she said, growing up in the middle of nowhere to having this dream of, uh, you know, going going to Hollywood, and she did it. Man. It almost works out. It's so funny. It's I forgot what actor it was had that story. I don't know if it was Harrison Ford had a story about uh, making a bet with someone going to L.A. or New York, and they chose L.A. and the rest is history. Kind of worked out for her at that time. New York was still the place to go. Like William Sadler was still there. There was a, like a lot of the people that I've chatted with over the years that were still in New York at that time. But then that change happened. Like in the mid '80s, people were like. Got to get to LA. That's where everybody's. That's where everybody's at. And she was there. She's in, you know, Terror Night, which she has fond memories of. You know, she loved. It was the best time of her using all her acting. You know, teachings, running around uh, a forest, screaming with big hair, and uh, of course, Friday the Thirteenth. Just an iconic to be able to be in one of those movies and be a victor of Jason has to be quite the honor. And then talking about being on a soap and how everything changed her and like how people didn't know boundaries when they noticed her on the streets. So that was quite interesting. And then talking about writing, I love the process of creating and uh, hers is great uh, from her book and how she took little pieces from her own life. I just loved it. Great chat. Again, her website, stacygreason.com, social media, everything will be in the episode notes. Your homework, which is amazing homework. If I was your teacher, you'd probably stand on the desk, give me a standing ovation. Friday the 13th, part seven, a new blood. Oof, I love this one. The first time again, Kane Otter dons the mask and he is so unreal. John Beekler directing it, doing the special effects. I wish we got an unrated version because they cut this movie so bad, but still, still a fun one. Still the silly characters. Nothing beats a Friday the 13th. So that's it. Don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast. Follow us on all social media at sequels only. And don't forget to check out our website, 
sequelsonly.com. Good night. Good night, guys.